This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So, let's get started. I would first like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as for those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to the show on, by spreading the word, by recommending California Dreaming in listening groups, and of course, for supporting us on Patreon as well. There are about 25 exclusive bonuses on Patreon, and for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to all of those episodes. This week, I'd like to thank Heather S., Rebecca M., Nancy S., Patricia R., Susan S., Jennifer S., Jennifer K., Alexandria F., Nicole N., and Sherry for joining Patreon. And I'd also like to thank Brad D., Lisa B., and Allison R. for raising their support up to the next tier. And also Michael M. for his one-time donation to the show on PayPal. Thank you again for all of your support. Dreamers, this is another one of those stories where in the past I may have said something cliche like, things like this just don't happen in these neighborhoods. Yet, here we are again. Back to Newport Beach, California. And we are going to hear from an all-too-familiar Orange County prosecutor, Matt Murphy, who I saw some people got pictures with at CrimeCon a few months back. And I'm hearing that he's getting his own TV show in the works as well, so good on him. It's never good circumstances when we hear from Matt Murphy, but I do like seeing him pop up in these Orange County cases that we discuss here on our show. The first one in Newport Beach was back in episode 14, The Tale of Lost at Sea, where we discussed the murders of Tom and Jackie Hawks. They were thrown off their boat, which they docked in Newport Harbor, and they were murdered by Skylar DeLeon, who is currently sitting on death row for those killings. Then we went back to the city of Newport Beach in episode 41 in the tale of Torture in the Desert, where an unidentified resident of Newport Beach was kidnapped and tortured because it was believed he buried a large sum of money somewhere out in the desert, and he had remained anonymous throughout the duration of this case because he was sexually mutilated as a part of the torture. We then went back to Newport Beach again in episode 85 with the tale of the lady in the water where Huntington Beach resident Barbara Mullinex was stabbed to death and disposed of in Newport Harbor. 
Newport Beach had also popped up, while as not the primary location of the incident, but was one of the locations of some of the nonsense in episode 57, The Tale of the PTA Mom. While that story involved zero amounts of violent crimes and murderiness, it remains one of my favorites to this day, and it is one that I like recommending starting with for newer listeners because I find the paltriness and the absurdity quite entertaining. That's where prominent Orange County attorneys Jill and Kent Easter took issue with the volunteer PTA mom at their son's school when she described their son as slow when it came to following instructions, lining up, and coming inside from after-school activities because he had been left behind one particular afternoon. The word slow sent Jill off into astronomical levels of petty bitterness when she went to extreme lengths to try and get PTA mom fired. So Newport Beach has been one of our relatively frequented locales, but despite some of the terrible crimes that we've covered there, it still remains a city where violent crime is not commonplace. So when something happens, like the story we're going to discuss today, it really stuns the community. And in this particular case, when it comes to the people who knew this family, their neighbors and friends, I was really moved by the closeness that they felt and how much one man's actions can have an impact on those who really loved and cared for his family. It's a story of college love, family, secrets, and coming into your own after many years of feeling out of place in the world. In this 103rd episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Behind Closed Doors. This is a 911 call. Conversation recorded on October 11th, 2012 at 5:30. 911 emergency. This is Crystal. Yeah, my wife. My wife's dead. Okay. So where exactly is she? They took her. They took her. Who took her? The guy broke into my house. He he drove me here. He, he had a friend. <laughs> They, they just gone. They've gone in a pickup truck. Okay, so your wife did that. She's dead. Oh, did they, she they die in the house? They, they, and then they took they, her corpse. Yeah, they 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 killed killed her uh, yesterday. They killed her yesterday. Yeah, we 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 we've been driving uh, in in Newport Beach. Okay, hold on. Let me get my supervisor on the phone. He said that his wife is dead, but somebody broke into dead. the house and stole and uh, he, he took her. Yeah, he. he we, okay, what? He what? Found her. He, uh, I, he, Who is he? he? Um, um, Juan. 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 How do you know Juan? Uh, I picked him up to to look at some painting work at the house. I brought him to the house. And when did this happen? Yesterday, middle of the day. Yesterday, in the middle of the day. And when did she die? Yesterday, middle of the day. Okay, and where is she and now? Like 11. Uh, they have her body. They said they're going to cut her up. Who has her body? Juan and she. Okay, so when she died at 11 o'clock, 
they took her? Yeah, yeah. They, they maybe put her in the car. We. How do you know she's dead? She drowned. She drowned. What? Her body was stiff, even. I've been driving with them. They, they say they're going to cut her up. What's your name? Peter Chadwick. Any kind of medication, sir? Non-heavy ones. Okay. I, it's not that. Okay. Because I, I think they're going, uh, they might be going to Mexico or somewhere. Okay, but this happened yesterday at 11. You're now calling us at 5.30 in the morning. I know. I, I want you to get him. Huh? Yeah. Okay. They're here. Okay, go talk to him. What you just heard was the 911 call made by Peter Chadwick that set this entire case in motion. This is a story that I have been planning on sharing with you for a while now, but it had been recently covered on another podcast that I know many of you listen to and enjoy, so I decided to wait a while, because it was kind of an open case that had not been taken to court yet, and there was still a manhunt going on. But all of that suddenly changed a little more than a week ago, and about a month or so after that other podcast did it, So I figured, screw it, I'll do it now. And then I thought, maybe I could get the host of the other podcast to discuss the case with me, since he just did it, and he said yes. So, let's listen to our conversation first, and then, afterwards, I will go back and fill in some of the finer details of this story, along with my usual commentary. So without further ado, let's take a listen to the conversation that I had regarding this case involving Peter and QC Chadwick. So this is a story that I was planning on sharing um, a few months back, um, but it was recently covered by the amazing host of the Minds of Madness podcast, Tyler. And because he had done such a good job on it, he just did it like a month or so ago. And um, he did a really thorough job on it But since he's done it, there's been a huge break in this case, really big. When he did it, it was a manhunt. But now there's some developing news, and now's the time for me to do it. And I've asked him if he would come and join me to talk about this case, and he so graciously agreed to be here with us today. Tyler? (laughs) Hi there. (laughs) Thank you so much. This is the story of Peter Chadwick. Um, you covered him in episode 53 of yours? Yes. And um, so I'm just going to get into the case, and I want to get some commentary from Tyler about this. So what happened was there was this married couple, Peter and Kui uh, Chu, and she goes by QC. And they met while they were attending college, and they got married and went on to have three kids. And they together built a pretty good life together. They amassed a good fortune. He earned his millions. I believe it was in real estate investment. Did you, were you clear on what he did for a living? Yeah, it was real estate, but it was his father's real estate company that he worked for. Oh, so it wasn't even his own thing. He followed in his father's footsteps. So he worked in the family business uh, managing assets and investments and developing real estate. Okay. 
I wasn't, nobody seemed to know what he was doing. He was kind of a mystery um, as far as his friends and neighbors were concerned that lived in the community that he lived in. And as for QC, it's my understanding she stayed at home and she managed the house and children. Mm-hmm. And um, which according to her neighbors, she did with an immense amount of dedication and devotion. Um, every All the interviews that I watched, they said that she was just like the ultimate mom. Yeah, totally yeah. outgoing and friendly. Mm-hmm. Everybody yeah. loved her. Yeah, that's, and you know what was strange about this case that set it apart from a lot of other stories we see is you didn't hear from any of her family. You only heard from her neighbors and they really cared for her deeply, which you don't often always see. It's usually the family that's on the interviews crying and telling about how wonderful a person this person was, but this time it was friends and that just goes to show how deeply she affected people and impacted their lives because she was such a really great person. Her neighbors absolutely loved her. They did. It was really refreshing to see here in California. Yeah, Yeah. the one neighbor across the street said how uh, she always looked forward to her Christmas parties and um, I believe even um, they interviewed the piano teacher, the boys uh, Mm -hmm. would go in and uh, take piano lessons from and one of the first things he said was how it was so refreshing to go to their home where she would always have a meal prepared for him and, and beverages. And, and he said that it was unusual um, for, for him to have that experience considering all the amount of people that he taught uh, piano to. Yeah, right. Everyone said really, really nice things about her. And I don't know if you noticed when you were watching the 48 Hours episode on this, but when you saw pictures of QC and Peter together, she was always really beaming, and he was always kind of like, bleh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. really like, no, he had a very flat affect about him. And um, we'll probably find out why as we go along here. So all of this would change on October 11th, 2012. Um, the life as they knew it and everyone who knew them, it would change forever when neither Peter nor QC appeared to pick up their two youngest children from the bus stop at school that day. And the eldest one was away at boarding school. Um, Every day the bus would come and drop them off at the stop near the house. And every day Peter would show up to pick them up there. I've heard that it was always Peter. Did you ever hear anything different that QC would do it sometimes? Um, I remember it being just Peter. Yeah, I'm not really sure why. Um, I thought maybe she didn't drive, but later on in the story, I found out that he was driving her car because his was impounded. So she drove, so I guess he just was in charge of whatever. Well, I thought his car was at the house because it was unusual that his car was in the driveway and her SUV was the one that was missing. Oh, was it? Because when, well, we'll get to it later on. We'll straighten yeah. up because I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves in the story because <laughs> okay. her, her car <laughs> comes into play a little bit later. Um, <clears throat> so they didn't show up and they were, they were not able to get a hold of either one of their parents. They had been calling and calling and nobody was answering. And this was really strange for um, both of the Chadwicks um, to not show up for them. It was alarming. And 
So it's a neighbor, I guess, came by and saw them standing there and yep. took them. Yeah, Bonita them. Canyon Drive. Was uh, the, you, that's where the bus stop was. You know she had picked up her things. children. <laughs> I, I, I did discover it. Um, uh, she had she had picked her children up and came back and noticed that the boys were at the bus stop. And by this point in time, they would have already been picked up. So that's why she stopped. Right. So um, they were essentially abandoned there. So investigators assigned to this case started off with calling around to the usual places, hospitals, reaching out to her family and her friends to see if anyone had heard anything or seen anything and nobody had any information. And they, the boys ended up sleeping at a friend's house. Um, all attempts to locate the parents failed. So what they did next was they went into the home. And do you want to describe what they found when they went in there? Because if you don't, chime in here i'm gonna be running my mouth this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> okay um so it was around 7 45 p.m uh they went to do the welfare check now one of the things that, w- that i found interesting was that neither of the boys had keys to the home and i guess that was probably because of their regimented schedule where they're always picked up they wouldn't need it so right. they actually had to force their way into the home um when they got in they discovered um that the house was clean. Actually, I believe the uh, detective said it was immaculate. Um, the kitchen was, it looked like s- someone had stopped in the middle of preparing lunch. There was uh, some plates on the table, some some um, Tupperware containers of food on the table, and or sorry, on the kitchen counter. And they went upstairs, looked around the house, main floor looked fine. They go upstairs, and that's when they discovered um, it looked like a commotion had happened in the master bathroom. So they go in, they look around the bathroom, they see that a decorative vase had fallen and broken on the floor, and there was um, some broken glass on the on the tub on the, the the ledge surrounding the tub, and then. They found what they described as a reddish-brown smudge, which later was discovered to be blood. It was still, I mean, it looked like there had been some kind of altercation had happened in there, but it also looked like it had also been cleaned up a bit. They go throughout, throughout the house, and then they find the safe in Peter's office is open, and that's when they realized... You know, this is more than just a welfare check where we've we stumbled onto a crime scene. Well, not stumbled, they've, they've discovered a crime scene. Yes. And also in the bathroom, there was another piece of shattered um, glass that had once held some seashells. And there were also um, towels that had some blood, what appeared to be yeah. blood, um, upon first, you know, seeing. Oh, in her wedding ring. Her wedding ring was in was still on the dresser, and her wallet was also there. Right. Okay. Good. I didn't. Um, oh, and her I, phone as well. Sorry, I forgot that. So, in the safe, there it was open, and I believe that there were some important documents, maybe like passports, um, financial documents, but there was no money, and we'll get more into that a little bit later. So. 
as the word started to spread that the couple was missing, it was very shocking for, you know, the neighbors and the boys to be left behind. The feeling was that something terrible um, must have happened to keep them from the boys. This just, it would never be like, um, especially QC and both of them were said to be very dedicated. So they were um, very, very worried. Her neighbors, we had just talked about at the beginning, um, said that QC was very vibrant and very friendly and had a tremendously great sense of humor. She was funny. She loved to laugh. And um, in the pictures, of, you can just see the happiness radiating from her. And um, when the neighbors were hearing that both of them had gone missing, it's, it's having people wonder, do we even know them at all? And it's sad because I felt really bad for these people. They, they talked so with so much heartfelt sorrow for what had happened in this situation. And um, they start to doubt, like, do we know these people? Like, what's going on here? But when it came to Peter, they had a different a feel about him as opposed to QC. Um, he was more... I guess, did they describe him as shy or withdrawn uh, compared to his wife? Um, they, they did. I know the one friend was, was saying, talking more about how it was noticed that he, the relationship between QC and Peter was almost a dependent relationship. He was driving around for X amount of hours practicing. He should have kept driving. <laughs> yeah, you, you, I keep thinking every time, you know, I had to edit it. And I listened to it a number of times and I kept thinking, did, are you just making this up on the fly? Or, you know, did you even think this through? Because like when he, when he introduces Chi, it's just like this random, oh, and Chi. And you're like, where where are you getting this? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think the 911 operator, she was dubious from the very beginning. She oh, was totally. like, oh, this is nonsense, but okay, I'll, I'll, I'll play. <laughs> so. the, the, the best is, of course, when she asks him if he's on any medication. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's like, you must be high, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he actually sounds, like, it sounds like it, it may not even be a real call. Right, right. It's just so, so ridiculous. This is after the 911 call ends because police show up at this random gas station that he ended up at, which is right across the Mexican border. Yeah, it looks um, right on the Arco station, looks right onto Tijuana. Right. And um, now later on, they're going to see that obviously Peter is the only one in this area. He's on the surveillance video, he's clearly alone. And, um, in the call, there's no urgency. He's just, he's he's faking this whole thing. It's completely ridiculous. Um, so his story is, is, he got picked up by this guy named Juan. And do you want to talk about who this Juan guy supposedly is? Yeah, the story was, was that he had spoke to Juan about doing some painting in the house. So his story is that, he speaks to Juan about painting the house and then takes Juan to the house, and which, which you would have heard in the 911 call. And he says that he comes upstairs and finds 
one strangling uh, QC in the bathtub. Peter goes to do something about it, but one um, fends him off with a two-inch bladed knife. <laughs> and so Peter can't right. do anything. Yeah, Peter can't do anything. Um, and then after he kills QC, he then instructs him to, instructs Peter to wrap her up in a blanket and carry her out of the house. So... Uh, Chi comes into the mix, I guess, at some point in time. They're driving around, and then they meet up with Chi, and they're in, yeah, I believe he said it was a green pickup van. <laughs> green Ridiculous. Pickup van, which, of course, you would have heard in the, in the 911 yeah. call, because he actually says that. A green pickup van, and it's a Chevy. Uh-huh. So, and then they're driving around, and they're threatening that they're going to cut up her body and and they're, you know, taking her to Mexico. And, um, sadly, because that's what they do, right? Yeah. Mexican body snatchers, take them over the border to chop them up. (laughs) When I heard that, yeah, when I heard that, I thought I've been, I haven't been across the Mexican border. I've crossed the Canadian U S border a number of times. And I'm thinking, how are you going to get across the border with a body in your vehicle? But uh, I guess Peter had it all figured out. Yeah. So. I think he watches a little bit too much TV. <laughs> mm-hmm. Indeed. So so they, uh, they drive around for the night and uh, drop him off at the border. And the story is they are taking her across the border into Tijuana to... Uh, to cut her up, I guess, is what he said. Right. So, But not hurt him at all? No, um, but he was hurt. Do you want yeah. to talk about that now? Yes, yes, I do. He did okay. have some injuries. Nothing nearly as, as bad what QC, um, her fate would be. Mm-hmm. He had some scratches on the side of his neck, on his arms, his body. Um, from the pictures I saw, it looked like he had some bruises on his torso, and he had injuries and scratches on his hands and around his nail beds. Mm-hmm. And he also had a bite mark on his arm. He had a bite mark, yes. Right. So somebody was doing a number on him. And it very much appeared as though that somebody was attempting to defend themselves from him attacking. Now, yes. when he was questioned by investigators, he attributed those injuries to a tussle with Juan, right? Um, but... That right there directly contradicts his earlier statements that Juan was holding him at bay with a two-inch pocket knife while he proceeded to drown QC in the bathtub and strangle her, which sounds even more ridiculous now that I'm saying it again, because Peter's just standing there afraid of this pocket knife while this Juan person is supposedly threatening him with it. At the same time, ostensibly down on the floor, kneeling or somehow leaned over a tub holding QC down underwater. And Peter just stands there. Helplessly watching the mother of his boys being murdered right in front of him, held back with a knife. So, and these injuries on him, he said he was being held back. So at what point would he, would Juan have caused all these injuries on his body? The bruises, scratches, the bite mark. And it's clear that when it's clear that Peter was in a fight, um, but it wasn't with a man who had not a problem murdering his wife, whilst just leaving a few marks on Peter. He had been in a fight 
and the person he was fighting with lost to me, you know? Um, so do, if you go and look on YouTube or, or on, you Google it, you could see some of his injuries. He was also really unable to say with any degree of specificity, how each of those injuries was inflicted on his body. Um, and nothing Peter ever said to anyone, um, about what happened at QC was specific either. He just stayed really vague for obvious reasons because <laughs> he's lying. And all this time, nobody's believing him. The police aren't believing him, the 911 operator, the neighbors. So what they still need to do is figure out where QC is. They arrested him six hours or so after he made that phone call, the 911 call. I want to get into the motive. Um, what's the motive behind this crime? What did you come away with? They didn't, they were trying to figure out why. Why would he want to do something like this to QC? I couldn't figure that one out, and that's one of the things that really, really confused me about this one because I couldn't see a clear motive. I mean, obviously, one of the things QC did, uh, because she was talking about divorce with her friends um, prior to to uh, her being murdered, she had gone onto his computer and started looking through the search history on his computer and was finding search phrases like abortion cost in California, Chinese massage girl escorts, teen Tijuana escort girls, divorce, Vicky Tran, California. And then, of course, the most disturbing one, which they mentioned in in the 48-hour special, was when they asked, what did, what did she find? And the detective said, how to, how to torture. Yeah. Which that yes. is really disturbing. He had 28 listed items. I found a picture of her list. Yeah. And it was just a lot of repeated um, searches. Those Guadalajara girls escorts, how much Mm -hmm. is an abortion? This Vicky Tran person really stood out to me because he's looking for Vicky Tran divorce, Vicky Tran, Vicky Tran, California, Vicky Tran home, and Vicky Tran wedding. So I'm thinking he was trying to search out somebody that he wants to reconnect with, that he's... Yeah, definitely. That was my, my interpretation as well. And another thing that he searched was sexy AOI. And I had no clue what that was, so I Googled it. And uh, did you Google that one? Sometimes you don't want to Google these <laughs> things. Well, Googling is one thing. Clicking on results is another. <laughs> so no, I didn't. Some things I just I just step away from. Right. So I didn't really want to click on anything, but what seemed to come up it had to do with Japanese women, some anime type of things, adult material, um, X-rated sites, and I, then I went on from there. I left that oh, Google search. So <clears throat> the abortion thing. Do you think he got somebody pregnant? I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't. I can't even understand it because they both come from affluent families. Um, both of their families have money. They, they're. He's very wealthy. From from what I read about him, it sounded like. I mean, to me, it sounded like he loved his children. Although even when he was caught, he didn't even ask about how they were doing or their whereabouts or anything but it it didn't seem like you know there was another woman involved or 
you know, he was afraid of paying child support or, you know, some of these things that in other cases that we cover where, you know, it's clear the husband is going around saying, well, I don't want to lose my kids or I don't want to pay child support. I don't want to have supervised visits. And they figure that the, the best answer to those kind of problems is, is murdering their spouses. But in this case, I, I couldn't find anything. And, and it was just, it was just, seems like in, in any case where, 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 where somebody's murdered, it's, it's, it's an awful tragic thing. But when you, when you read about these ones that have, you can't even find a reason or figure out a reason. It's, it's like so senseless and, and heartbreaking, but right. I digress. No, that I, I searched for a motive too. And I found another um, TV show about this and they sort of alluded to some sort of financial issues um, that possibly that they weren't doing as well financially as had been previously thought. What that entails, I'm not sure. I can only speculate because I do speculate. But I think maybe his philandering and all these escorts and with QC, I found out later on that she was starting to spend more money on herself. She was losing weight. She was um, revamping her wardrobe learning how to do her makeup and her hair and handbags and shopping. And she was traveling with her girlfriends. So maybe the spending was coming between them, him on his lifestyle and her on her lifestyle. Well, I don't know. He fled the country with, they speculate around a million dollars. So right, right. we still had a lot of money on hand. Now, based on Peter's search history, it's not a stretch to assume that he was having extramarital affairs and um, though it doesn't seem like he was particularly looking for love or a relationship because he was frequenting escort services what I saw reported was a few days before QC was killed she was able to establish that he was indeed cheating when she discovered that he had contracted a sexually transmitted disease and know that yeah, I, I didn't know that either till I saw the second um, news coverage on this story, other than 40, 48 hours didn't talk about it. So this sort of escalated the problems that they were already having, and um, this is what they think pushed Peter, um, not Peter, um, QC over the edge to want to move forward with a divorce. That might have been the last draw for Peter, who might not have wanted to get a divorce. He knew it was going to be costly, she was probably going to get half of his stuff. He might not have. This is the things that you're talking about that it doesn't seem to be problematic for him. Yeah. But when the, when he wants to live, go on with his philandering, how much is he going to be able to afford if he's paying alimony and child support and all this stuff on this side? His lifestyle that he wants to live is going to be impacted. I didn't see anything about any kind of domestic violence. All I could see were hints of emotional, mental, and financial abuse. Uh, it seems like he was inflicting upon her, but I don't know. I, it, it's, it's hard to say. The motive, they seem to think it was the fighting over money, the fighting over possibly getting divorced, and Peter not wanting to deal with that mm-hmm. complication in his life. So he was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, and they didn't find her And for, was it a week? Yeah, it was a week later. They found her in the dumpster. They're looking for the uh, 
police. They got a. Was it somebody? I'm they did to, receive a tip. Yeah. Okay. It was. It was. A, they weren't was specific tip. about who or what, but there was a tip that led them to that dumpster. That's right. That's right. So they were. Yeah. They they combed San Diego and Orange County, you know, checking all the ravines and secluded areas, and, and a number of dumpsters uh, there as well but couldn't find her. And then a tip did come in. And yes, you're right. The police refused to discuss it publicly, but it did direct police to a a rural area in San Diego. Yeah. Um, I've been to Wildcat Canyon Road because there's a casino out there that my mom used to love to go to. And I've taken the road that winds through that canyon. It is very windy. It's very steep and rugged and with a lot of thick brush. So it's, very easy if you're smart to hide a body mm-hmm. <laughs> not if you're Peter <laughs> well now one of the uh, well I'll say how I'll say how it was she was discovered but then there was there was another interesting thing about this area so the how the houses in the area don't have um, municipal garbage pickup they hire private contractors to to put dumpsters at the end of their driveways, and then they have the the private contractors come and pick up the dumpsters and empty them. And I believe it was a billing dispute between mm-hmm. the owner and the company, and that was the reason why it hadn't been picked up. Right. So. Lucky. Well. Lucky for the family that at least that QC was found. Yeah, that's uh, what I mean. Not lucky that yeah, she was there. Exactly. Lucky she wasn't taken away. Exactly. So because of this billing dispute, they they found her. Now, one of the things that I found really strange was that among the possessions that were in the dumpster with QC's body that happened to be wrapped in the green towel that or blanket that Peter had actually described. Juan uh, forced him to do <laughs> was her purse, but it also included the ten thousand dollars that was missing from the family's safe in the house, mm-hmm. right. and that I can't wrap my head around because, you know, you would think that if you're in a situation where you might be on the run and the police may not buy your story. I think 10,000 bucks in your pocket might be a helpful thing. But then, of course, he probably figures, I'm going to tell the story. They're going to buy it. And, you know, if I have the 10,000 on me, then that's going to look suspicious. It had to go along with his narrative that, yeah. that Juan robbed him. That was the motive for Juan doing all of this. Yes, exactly. So the one thing that was also interesting was... This wasn't the first body that was found in that dumpster. Yikes. It had uh, previously, I I believe it was, was it a couple of years prior? They had found another body in the exact same dumpster. But the the family that owned, the family that owned the house, they were ruled out. It was just just bad luck that they had the (laughs) place with their dumpster. Terrible luck. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a it was a stroke of luck for investigators to be able to find her and um, the items that were in there. The medical examiner, once he was able to, he or she, I'm not sure, was able to perform an autopsy on QC. It was determined that 
she did put up a fair struggle for her life and she was strangled and there was a possibility of that being combined with the drowning. With all of this information, they are preparing, you know, to take Peter to trial. They're pretty convinced that he did this. Um, but come two months after his arrest, he's granted bail. And what does he do? <laughs> he doesn't do it right away. He waits a couple years, right? Well, he moves back with his father. Right. And he's back at his dad's house. And I guess he probably realized the case was closing in on him. And he decides it's time to split. Right. He was going through all the motions of he was showing up for his pretrial stuff. Um, but while he was doing that, he was studying up on how to disappear. So in January of 2015, he had a court date scheduled. And the, the thing was, is nobody thought that he would abandon his kids. But here's the thing. He disappeared in January. All of his kids by this time were sent off to boarding school. Yep. So he didn't have to worry about them. And he was ready to go. Did you research about how the things that he did to see if he was being surveilled and what he could get away with? Well, he did some test runs um, mm -hmm. traveling within the U.S. And was it Pennsylvania that he went to? I, I think his dad moved back there. And I think they were watching his dad, but I think this was during the time he might have absconded. Yeah, I know he did some he, he did some test trips mm -hmm. within the country. And, of course, there's the books that he bought, which right. uh, the most ridiculous things. Um, how to how to survive on the lamb in Mexico <laughs> or something like that. Um, right. How to I can't I can't even remember, but they were just. Right, how to Silly, change like, your identity. Yeah, who, who buys a book for something like that? Right. Yeah, <laughs> he anyway. was taking, <laughs> he was he was also hanging around the airport. He bought an airline ticket and he kind of just waited. I think this mm -hmm. was the last time that he was actually seen on surveillance before he vanished. He purchased a plane ticket and then he just sort of lingered around the lobby for a few hours to wait and see what happened. Yes, and, but how did he get to the airport is another interesting part. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You <laughs> can talk about that. That's hilarious. So a taxi cab <laughs> picks up a fare at Peter's father's house and drives to the airport. But when the taxi driver was interviewed, the taxi driver said he picked up a woman, <laughs> which, which they later figured out was Peter dressed in drag. Right. Um, because airport security then a couple hours later sees Peter dressed in his regular clothes milling around the airport right. and he's just walking around doing his thing. So it's speculated, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's exactly what happened. He dressed like a woman, gets to the airport, goes into the bathroom, changes his clothes, gets the ticket, hangs out and then leaves in another cab. And that was it. He was gone. Mm -hmm. So the search, I think he, what he also was trying to do was leave breadcrumbs to mislead investigators. And there was a point where I think he may have even traveled into Canada. They thought that he was there, but he actually doubled back and went down to Mexico. Yeah, they thought he might have gone to Vancouver because I believe he had some connections there. 
One of the things that was originally in our script that we we took out, and I'm trying to remember that there may have been some speculation that it was easier to travel into Canada and then from Canada to Mexico. Oh, okay. Um, but it was it was it was speculation, and as you know, on our show we don't do speculation. So yeah. oh, I speculate so, all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 we we knocked that part out. I mean, but, I tell the facts, but then I I chime in with my own opinion, and I'll make it clear uh, this is my opinion. Of course, this is another blow to QC's family because they and her friends who really cared for her and loved her and wanted to see him, you know, brought to justice for this. You know, he kills her. He throws her away like she's trash. He gets bailed out, and now he's fled the country, and he's abandoned his children, likely forever, because whether he gets caught or not, his relationship with his children is going to be damaged forever. Totally. And, and then he, he drains the banks. Yeah. He takes all the money he can off of all of their credit cards. They should have so been not, watching him do this stuff. Yeah, so not only not only is he taking away anything that could help support his children, but then he's leaving his family with this tremendous debt load from all of his credit cards. Right. I think in the back of his mind, he knew that QC's family would step in and step up, which they did. Yeah, they, I believe it was the uncle that, mm-hmm. well, it was the uncle that was with the boys and the, uh, child services uh, right. counselors said to tell them that uh, his mother, their mother had been had been killed, and that their father was was the suspect. Right. So this went on for more than four and a half years. And when you did this show on July seventh, is mm-hmm. when your episode dropped. He was still a fugitive. Yes. Well. I believe it was a, a, almost a, a month to the day of your episode that he was captured. Mm-hmm. Have you, did you look into the news stories and all of that? Oh, yeah. No, it was the moment he was captured, the email started coming in. Right. In fact, uh, we, we're, we're still getting them. We got an email <laughs> off of our website saying, did you know Peter Chadwick was captured? And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I heard from uh, the first person who messaged me. I didn't even do the story and people were telling me. Mm-hmm was Justin Rimmel. Mm. I was like, oh, my God. And then that's when I messaged you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, he, he's got to talk to me about this case because he just did it. And I didn't want to come off as like some kind of jerk to just do the show right after you did. <laughs> but I really oh, wanted right. to do the story. I was holding off. But then he got caught, and I was like, oh, my God, this is such huge news. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk about his capture? I don't want yeah, to talk about yeah. the manhunt. The manhunt was very extensive, and we could talk about that for days. Yeah, and, and uh, Beck and the kids are home, so I'm going to be getting uh, dog traffic and children traffic <laughs> above my head now. Okay. <laughs> they capture him in, I'm trying to remember the name of the city. It was outside of Puebla. Oh, yes, Puebla, Puebla, Mexico. So I guess. They think he was waiting tables or a busboy. He was a busboy or something like that, mm-hmm. and he had a he had a little a little apartment uh, conveniently beside a a resort or a, <laughs> a, yeah, country, a country club. club. Yeah, country club where he would play, play tennis. tennis. <laughs> yeah. Yes, what a jerk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, they they extradite him back to the U.S. and U.S. Marshals are there waiting for him, slap the cuffs on him, 
And I believe the, from actually, I did watch the 48 Hours um, episode on it. And it was the U.S. Marshal that had been interviewed on the previous show. And the first thing he asked him was how his son was. You know why I think he did that? Because he watched the story of himself on 48 Hours. He told him, and he looked like such a jerk for abandoning his kids. I think he did that to try to Mm -hmm. save face. Yeah, it totally was. I mean, that was set up. I'm yeah. sure the whole on the plane ride back, he was thinking, you know, uh, how am I going to try and save face? And yeah, yeah. So he said that for sure. And he had a whole bunch of different fake IDs. Um, he was going mm-hmm. by aliases. And he, he did you notice he also knocked a few years off his age too? <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Well, he tried to make himself look younger by uh-huh. by dyeing his hair and his his mustache and beard. Right. Even to the to... point where the U.S. Marshal said that he actually did look younger. Um, did, as far as yeah. the ID, though, the ID uh, <laughs> I got a kick out of was his fake uh, security company ID for okay. Shield. Oh yeah, his and special agent, special forces, special agent, <laughs> special agent ID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. That was really funny. They they thought it was like an attempt to try to make nice with the local fed rallies yeah. and stuff down. I guess I guess he assumed that anybody who showed that ID would not have watched a Marvel uh, movie. So now he's in custody, um, but they do think that he was talking to people up here, helping him, yep. maybe his dad and his family. Do you think there's going to be some other arrest made in connection? Or? Oh, aiding and abetting, probably. And they they knew he was getting financial support from people he knew. So, right, awesome. So, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing what how this unfolds. Maybe mm-hmm. after the trial, um, I don't know how long it's going to take. Probably years, knowing California. <laughs> yeah, well, there's no there's no trial date set. So. Right, right. I mean, this they're just probably, happened. Yeah, they're probably still trying to get some part of the truth of what what he did right they did say that he seemed a little bit relieved that the stress of being on the run was was a lot for him yeah i didn't I, buy it oh, okay i wasn't sure that was coming yeah. from the marshal yeah I, I i don't i think what he was probably you, you were seeing they were seeing from him was i'm probably more sorry for myself yeah, you're probably right. All right. So in a couple of years when this has all been adjudicated and he's locked away forever, would you like to possibly someday do an update again? Oh, sure. Sure. I think right. we're going to, we, we were, we've talked about doing an update, but of course I'm going to wait till the, till the court case is over. Right. Right. But it awesome. was, uh, we were, we were very pleased to see that he had been captured and I immediately went and looked at our, our downloads to see how many listens we had in Mexico. And I thought, <laughs> you know, whenever they heard our podcast, but no, it was it was the police. The police were working with the uh, with the Mexican police, and it was a right. They did, they did a really good job of closing this case. And also, we we didn't mention that the Newport Beach um, Police Department did a podcast. They did um, yeah. countdown to capture. Countdown to capture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so listen to that if you want to get better details than I give you. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought. Well, and, and you can you can listen to ours as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, of course, of course. Um, but no, countdown. I, I really enjoyed countdown to capture, and and 
it was it was very unique that they took that approach, which kind of was it was a first, at least for what I've known. I I've, I don't know any any open cases where the police had had uh, did a I podcast. I thought it was. I thought it was. It was a really, really cool idea, and uh, they did a great job. Yeah, that's what they were saying at the end of um, the forty-eight hours updated version of the forty-eight hours episode. Was that it was all the police agencies, the marshals, the <laughs> federales, the Newport Beach Police Department working all together, along with the tip that they got. Um, they got a tip that led them down to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably someone looking to cash in on this hundred thousand dollar reward. Yeah. And all of it led to his capture, and and I'm glad too. I'm I'm glad that the family and QC's family and her friends who cared about her can finally rest easy that this guy isn't running around enjoying life and playing tennis and sipping, yeah, staying in fancy hotels and whatever. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. I know your family's home. You go be with them. Thank you for talking to me. Oh, you're very welcome. And it was really nice talking to you. This is the first time we've had a conversation. I know. Well, I, I hate to ask people to do stuff with me because it seems like such a burden, but I've become better at like um, doing these conversational types of, mm-hmm. of recordings because I do, I work alone, like completely alone. So it was mm-hmm. very uncomfortable, but I was really so excited about this case and so excited that you guys covered it that I felt like the the right thing to do was to try and see if you want to talk to me because mm. you've been so familiar with it. Oh yeah, no, the timing was perfect. We're right in the middle of a production week. And so, right. so I had the time to do it. So well, awesome. thank you for asking thank me. You. I'm going to um, go ahead and end the recording All right. now. I would like to thank Tyler again for being so kind to set aside time to go over this case with us. He covered it in minds of madness in episode 53 So if you would like another take on this case, go over there and have a listen. And I know now that you basically know how the story goes, I'm going to start back at the beginning and go over my notes and give you some of my commentary about the whole story, as if this was just a freestanding episode of California Dreaming. As I mentioned earlier, this story really stuck with me and how much the community in which it took place reacted. It was different, and I tried to put my finger on why this felt so different than other stories, and it finally dawned on me. As I watched and re-watched the 48 hours on this case, the journalists reporting on it only talked to neighbors in order to get some insight into the family that we are going to be discussing. No other family members were spoken to on either side, and that doesn't really happen too often. Peter and Kwechu Chadwick, and Kwechu is going to go by the initials QC, met sometime in the late 80s while both of them attended Arizona State University. They were married in 1991 and went on to have three sons. Both of them came from pretty well-to-do families, but did go on to amass a fortune of their own. Peter earned his millions working in real estate, though, interestingly enough, his neighbors weren't exactly clear as to what it was he did, just that it had to do with real estate. 
As for QC, it is my understanding that she stayed at home and took care of the house and the children, which, according to neighbors, she did with an immense amount of dedication and devotion. By all accounts, Peter and their three boys were her entire world, and I will get more into the dynamics of the family as we go along. The couple would eventually settle down in an upscale gated community in Newport Beach. Both Peter and QC were immigrants. Peter was born in the United Kingdom and QC was Malaysian. So by 2012, with the exquisite home, the three beautiful children, they're both realizing that American dream that is so often referred to when talking about people making their way to the United States to build a better life for themselves and their families. The Chadwicks had made it. However, on October 11, 2012, life for the Chadwicks, as everyone knew it, would forever change. And it all began when neither Peter nor QC appeared to pick up their two youngest children from the bus stop that day after school. The eldest Chadwick boy was away, attending boarding school. Every day, the bus would drop the boys off at a stop near their house, and every day, Dad, Peter, would drive there, pick them up, and take them the rest of the way home. But on this particular day, he failed to show up. The boys were left sitting there at the bus stop, waiting and it just so happened that a neighbor driving past noticed the boys and stopped to find out what was going on. They said they had not been able to get a hold of either one of their parents. They were calling, but nobody was answering. And this was very unusual for both of the Chadwicks, so it was alarming. At some point, Newport Beach police were contacted, as it seemed that nobody had been able to get a hold of Peter or QC. Nobody had any idea what happened, and the neighbor has got these two boys on her hands, essentially abandoned. So investigators assigned to this case started off with checking the usual places, calling around to local hospitals, reaching out to family and friends to see if anyone had heard anything or knew anything, but there was nothing, no information. The boys would end up sleeping at a friend's house that night as every attempt to contact their parents had failed. The Newport Beach police entered the Chadwick's home to see what, if anything, they could find that could give them some indication as to what happened to the missing couple. Upon entering the home at first glance, nothing really seemed to be out of place in terms of the entranceway and into the living room. But as they looked inside at a downstairs office, they noticed a safe was left open. Inside, there were some documents and important papers. Otherwise, there didn't seem to be much else, no money or anything like that. In the kitchen, investigators also noticed that it appeared as though someone was in the middle of making a meal for two people. There was food left out of the fridge and a couple of plates sitting on the counter. But when they went upstairs, the master bathroom told another story. They immediately began spotting something decorative that had been sitting on the edge of the bathtub. 
The bathtub was encircled by a pretty wide edge where you might want to put candles or wine glasses, stuff like that, while you're bathing. So there was this decorative item that had been shattered, and there was also a jar that had some seashells in it that was also shattered, and the shells were strewn about. And upon closer inspection of the bathtub, they noticed that there were some smears of blood and patches of blood kind of close to the drain. There were also some towels nearby that also appeared to have blood on them. It's clear to investigators that some sort of violent event took place in the master bath. And the family's SUV was also missing. The Chadwick's neighbors started getting word that the couple was gone. And the whole thing was very shocking. For the boys to be left behind, the feeling was that something really terrible must have happened to keep them from them. It had to be as they were never just not showing up, especially QC. I mean, both of the parents were known to be dedicated. They wanted to know where QC was. Why was she not here with her children? Something must be going on, and it is not looking good. QC's neighbors described her as very outgoing, a very jovial and vibrant and friendly person. She had a tremendous sense of humor and she loved to laugh, and she was really funny, a really great personality. And it was apparent in many of the pictures that I saw of QC along with Peter. It was always her smiling. She always had a smile. You could see happiness in her eyes. It was just radiating from her. As for Peter, he kind of always looked a little flat and emotionless. Honestly, dreamers, he reminds me of the straight-faced emoji in so many of the pictures. QC's neighbors also described her as very bright and talented. She was just good at stuff, you know. But with this news of both Peter and QC having gone missing, it's having everyone who knew the couple wonder, did we ever really know them at all? And that's really sad because... When you're close to someone and it turns out they're not who you thought they were, it can be hurtful, but it can also have you questioning yourself and your own senses and judgment. Well, in this case, I'd have to say I don't think the neighbors were wrong in their assessment of QC. She was probably exactly how they knew her to be. But when it came to Peter, it didn't seem like he was as engaging as his wife and the neighbors tended to agree. They actually really didn't know him all that well. QC was the fun and friendly and outgoing one of the two, which isn't unusual for a couple, for one to be more sociable than the other. But it did stand out to QC's friends how she was always so engaging and always looking forward to the neighborhood gatherings and the parties. And one thing was apparent from the very first time Anyone who met QC noticed that she was very dedicated to her children and she worked really hard to make sure that not only were they well-rounded boys when it came to education, but also when it came to learning music as well as participating in a sport. And that is a schedule that's just as demanding as a full-time job, possibly even more so, and three times over with each of her boys. Stay-at-home moms or dads know 
that juggling school and extracurriculars, it's a lot. And QC embraced her role as a devoted mom. And that's where a big part of her connection with her neighbors lies. Their children attended school together, and QC had three of them, all different grades, all different sets of friends. So yeah, QC had lots to work with and lots to do, and that's how these neighbors came to know and love QC and her boys. According to the Chadwick's neighbors, it was their understanding that QC also very much cared for Peter. She was as devoted a wife as she was a mother, but she was also pretty reliant upon him. QC, being from a foreign country, is akin to being like a fish out of water. Being in the United States had to be a big change for her, and it took some time to find her footing and becoming acclimated to being here and learning just how things work. What all of this means... I mean, the neighbor just kind of glossed over it and said that, you know, being in the U.S. was a learning and growing process for QC. But I also wondered just how dependent QC was on Peter and how that affected the dynamics of the relationship. Because the neighbor also said that she sensed that Peter was pretty okay with that setup, that he was comfortable with QC relying on him for everything. So from there, with QC tasked with taking care of the kids, it seems as though Peter went on to be the breadwinner of the family, and he did well for himself and his kids and QC. She didn't work. And eventually, their net worth, well, I'm not exactly sure what it was, but they're often referred to as multimillionaires, so they're not hurting. And what we often see happening a number of times when we talk about these types of cases when the wife takes on the role of homemaker and wife and mother, rather than being treated as an equal partner in the marriage, as she should be, she's often pushed down into subservience. Of course, this isn't the case for most marriages, at least I hope. But if you are in this situation, never lose sight of the fact that you are your own person. You are more than just his wife or their mom and you are very capable of finding yourself if you feel like you're losing your identity. And no matter what he tells you, you are just as important. And I'd even argue more important than being the breadwinner. And what's more, you're entitled to half of all that, honey. So don't forget that. But as the years passed... QC's friends began to see an evolution in her. The more comfortable she became, not only in these foreign surroundings, but also in her own skin. As there was always this air of insecurity, this desire to want to try and fit in with the other Newport Beach moms, and that can't be easy. Because remember, she's not American, she's Asian. And from personal experience, typically Asians whether they be Chinese, Korean, Filipino, Vietnamese, Indian, and the like, here in California, and it might be similar in other large metropolitan areas with a large immigrant population, they tend to conglomerate in certain specific geographical areas and culture-specific districts begin to develop. Where I lived before I moved to Orange County was just a mile or so away from Little India, and the surrounding residential communities have a really large Indian demographic. 
Now that I live in Orange County, I live just a couple miles south of Little Saigon, and in the middle of that, there is a Korean district as well. And Chinatown is in downtown Los Angeles, so you get the picture. But Newport Beach is pretty exclusive. The breakdown of the residents, well, the majority is 82% white. As for Asians, despite the fact that Newport Beach isn't too far away from Little Saigon, the Asian population is less than 1%. Now, just to compare, the city that I just moved from, Cerritos, the white population is 23% and the Asian population is 62%. That's how moving from city to city around Southern California is like. So if you're of a certain ethnicity and you want to reside in a community of people with your same background, then you know where to go generally. So all the neighbors that I saw who spoke to QC, they're all white, and her husband, he was white too. So QC struggled in the beginning to fit in. But her neighbors really grew fond of her. She was very much adored, and they cared about her. And she was very much a part of their social circle. QC recognized that she may not have been as independent as her friends, but slowly she was becoming more of her own person. Her insecurities began to fall away, and her confidence in herself was slowly on the rise. And this would obviously lead to a shift in the dynamics between QC and Peter. None of QC's friends could say that they ever really knew Peter Chadwick all that well. For the most part, they didn't socialize with him, almost exclusively with QC. They would even describe him as a mystery, but they did say that he was pretty devoted to his children as well. I've had a couple of friends like that in the past who were really outgoing and social and their husbands were kind of quiet, homebody types, and they really didn't say more than, hey, how's it going, in passing. And when you see these friends and neighbors talk about how much they loved QC and what she was like and how they knew her, yet when it comes to Peter, they draw a blank because he was so withdrawn in comparison. That's the reason. He just didn't interact with them. And why he didn't could be a number of reasons. But later on, we're going to get some more insight as to how Peter treated QC and their marriage. And it isn't pretty. And this may also shed some light on the reasons why QC struggled so much with her own insecurities in the beginning and why she seemed as though she was starting to appear to be moving away from that into a space where she was becoming more self-assured in addition to a potential desire for more self-reliance. But now, all of that was being thrown into jeopardy with the couple having gone missing. And based on what was found in the master bath... It isn't looking good. For about 18 hours or so, everyone was just scratching their heads, just beside themselves trying to figure out what happened to the Chadwicks. And then they got a break. The following morning, just before sunrise, that 911 call that I played for you came in from a gas station in San Diego. I'm going to go through the transcripts of the call one more time with you here. The 911 call came in on October 12, 2012 at 5.30 in the morning. The operator says, 911, this is Crystal. 
and Peter says, yeah, my wife, my wife's dead. Where exactly is she? They took her, they took her. Who took her? The guy broke into my house. He drove me here. He had a friend. They've just gone. They've gone in a pickup truck. Okay, so your wife is kidnapped? She's dead. Okay, so they got into the house and took her corpse? Yeah, they, they, they killed her, killed her yesterday. And you can kind of tell that the operator is not believing what he's saying. She says, they killed her yesterday? Yeah, we, we, we've been driving in, in Newport Beach. Okay, hold on. Let me get a supervisor on the phone. And then she tells the supervisor, he says that his wife is dead. Someone broke into the house and took her. Okay, what? Who is he? Um, 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 Juan, Juan. Juan? How do you know Juan? I picked him up to look at some painting work at the house. I brought him to the house. When did this happen? Yesterday, middle of the day. Yesterday, middle of the day? When did she die? Yesterday, middle of the day. Okay, where is she now? It was like 11. Uh, they have her body. They said they're going to cut her up. Who has her body? Juan and Chi. Okay, when she died at 11 o'clock, they took her? Yeah, yeah, they made me put her in the car. How do you know she's dead? She drowned, she drowned. What? Her body was stiff even. I've been driving with them. They said they're going to cut her up. What's your name? Peter Chadwick. Are you on any kind of medication, sir? Not a heavy one. It's not bad. Okay, okay. I think they're going, uh, I think they're going to Mexico or somewhere. What color car did Juan leave in? What? What? What color car did Juan leave in? Dark green, dark green, uh, um, like a pickup van, but covered. Um, what do you call, uh, um, and, uh, uh, Chevy. The operator cuts him off and says, okay, this happened yesterday at 11, but now you're calling at 530 in the morning. I know. I want you to get him. I know the audio that I played you had edited out some of that, but that's pretty much the gist of the transcripts. And that's when the police arrived at that gas station in San Diego. Now remember, all of this, Peter walking into the gas station to use the phone to dial 911, everything is captured on surveillance video and it is clear that he's alone. As you heard on the call, there is very little urgency or believability for that matter in Peter's voice. To me, he's pretty much being the worst of all things guilty people do on 911 calls. And it's so obvious that the operator isn't believing a word he's saying. So much so that she even asks him if he's on medication because she's thinking this guy has got to be high. So that's Peter's story. He picked up a guy named Juan, maybe a day laborer type of person, to come and take a look at some painting that he wanted done at his house. 
Peter said that he went down to his office for a moment and that's when he started hearing QC screaming. Juan had apparently decided to attack QC in the master bathroom, at which point Peter confronts the situation, but he's prevented from helping QC by Juan, who's yielding a two-inch pocket knife. And yet somehow Juan is able to continue his assault on QC while simultaneously holding Peter at bay and was able to drown her while she was taking a bath. And all the while, Peter is just looking on. And Peter did not add a second person into the story until they supposedly arrived in San Diego where Juan met up with another character named Chi, which to me sounds like a mashup of QC's two names, Kui Chu. If you take the beginning of her second name, Chu, and you mash it up with the ending of her first name, Kui, coincidentally, you get Chi. But that's just an observation of mine that furthers the incredulous nature of this story in my mind. So anyway, Peter claimed that once QC was dead, Juan forced him to wrap her body up in a blanket from their home, and together they carried QC down the stairs, and then Juan ordered him to place QC's body into Peter's own SUV and just told him to drive. Juan also ordered Peter, apparently, to open the safe, and he took $10,000 in cash out of it and turned that over to Juan as well. So they got into Peter's car, and his car was captured on surveillance cameras, leaving the family home at a time that was inconsistent with Peter's story. Then from there, Peter was ordered by Juan to drive for hours, aimlessly for no apparent reason. All through the night, with QC's body in the back of the SUV until sometime in the early morning hours of the next day when Juan supposedly met up with his friend Chi and they loaded up QC's body to take it into Mexico to cut her up and then left Peter there alive at the gas station with his vehicle which was a stone's throw away from the Mexican border. That's the best Peter could come up with. These Mexican guys that are going to rob and kill QC force Peter to do all of this dirty work for them. They're even going to hang on to QC's body so they could take it over to Mexico and chop it all up into pieces just to make sure that they cover their tracks, right? Yet they're totally cool with letting Peter go scot-free, able to identify them and everything. They're going to the extreme measures of chopping up QC but not touch a hair on Peter. Why? Because he's such a cool guy, having been so accommodating and giving them a little bit of spending money, giving them a ride back down to the border. Hey, let's just leave him while we beat, drown, and chop up QC, right? Okay, Peter. Even your neighbors and friends who have known you for years and years didn't even like you all that much. So right off the bat, not only was the 911 operator likely sitting at her desk calling BS all over the story of Peter's, police arriving at the scene are too. I mean, it wasn't long before Peter's tragic tale of losing his wife to Mexican body snatchers started looking holier than Swiss cheese. There was no indication one ever existed anywhere. Peter said QC was killed at 11, but the surveillance video at his gated community showed his vehicle leaving about two and a half hours later as they watched it leave, and it was clear that there was nobody in the car with Peter, with, of course, the exception of QC, who was hidden in the back. 
And when it came to witnesses they spoke to at the gas station where Peter ended up, nobody saw anybody else. There was no Juan, there was no Chi, there was no green Chevy truck van thingy seen on their surveillance either. The only vehicle seen is Peter's, and the only person seen is Peter going into that gas station to use the phone. When Peter was finally brought in for questioning, obviously he had a story to tell and some explaining to do. And investigators noticed right away that he had various injuries on his body that looked pretty suspicious. And you know, sometimes when we see injuries on people, they can be somewhat faint. Like, remember Chris Watts, for example? When we watched his interview on the news while Shanann, Bella, and Celeste were still missing, we took notice of what appeared to be some faint scratches on his neck or on his cheek or something, and that was enough for us to start crying foul immediately, among other things. But Peter's injuries were pretty bad and incriminating. He had all these scratches all over the side of his neck and on his arms and his body. He had bruises and he had injuries and scratches on his hands and all around his nail beds. And he also had a bite mark on his arm. So somebody was doing a number on him. And it very much appeared as though that someone was attempting to defend themselves from Peter attacking them. Now, naturally, he was questioned by investigators, and he attributed those injuries to a fight with Juan. But that right there directly contradicted his earlier statements about Juan holding him at bay with that two-inch pocket knife while he proceeded to drown QC in the tub. Because, I mean, picture it, dreamers. How is Peter just standing there, afraid of a pocket knife that this Juan person is threatening him with, while at the same time, he's leaning over the tub, holding QC down underwater, yet Peter just stands there, watching as his wife is being murdered right in front of him. And he said he was being held back by Juan armed with a knife. So at which point would it have been that Juan caused all of those injuries and bruises and scratches and the bite mark? It was clear that Peter had been in a fight. And he was really unable to say with any amount of specificity how each of those injuries on his body were inflicted. He was also quite vague about whatever happened to QC, and he was vague because his story was untrue. Now, investigators also found a suitcase that was packed with men's clothing inside Peter's SUV, which has everyone thinking... This appears suspicious because why in the world would Juan allow Peter to pack a bag like this? Like, yeah, we might be away for a few days. Why don't you pack for a couple nights, some toiletries, stuff like that? Said no kidnapper ever. As we go along in this story, this suitcase, in my opinion, should have been a huge point of contention a little bit later on, but I don't want to get too far ahead right now. So, I think we can all agree that nothing about Peter's fantastical story is adding up or making any kind of sense. It all sounded ridiculous, and some of it sounded pretty cliche, too. Like, he watched some kind of similar story like this unfold on TV. He makes up this character, Juan, and will make him Mexican because that's what criminals in Mexico do over there, right? They chop up bodies. Like... 
There's undoubtedly that level of violence when it comes to murders that take place in Mexico, bodies being dismembered, and oftentimes a message is being sent with these killings, and sometimes bodies are even left on display. Just a few days ago, news broke out of the Mexican state of Michoacan that nine bodies were found hanging from a bridge, along with a banner that had the initials of one of the country's most prolific drug cartels, and it is believed to have been done to send a message to rival drug gangs to intimidate them as a part of an ongoing turf war. So this is what I think Peter is thinking. I'll just think of the most common name ever, Juan, and tell investigators that they're taking her to Mexico to chop her up. Because, like I said, that's what they do, right? Chop up suburban housewives in Mexico. To send a message to who? The cartels? It's ridiculous that Peter thought that that story was going to fly. And furthermore, they let him live? No problem drowning, killing, and chopping up QC, but leave Peter alone with a few bumps and scrapes? And if the motive was robbery, as Peter had reported that he was forced to give Juan $10,000, why murder QC? And why would Juan attack QC when Peter's momentarily going back downstairs to his office? Wouldn't Peter be a potential threat? If he heard his wife screaming upstairs and Juan has his back facing the doorway, allegedly attacking and drowning her in the tub, wouldn't Juan be worried that Peter could come back armed with a weapon of some sort? If there was a Juan, and if this was a robbery, and QC was in the bathtub at that time, it would make so much more sense for Juan to go ahead and overtake Peter with his knife while QC is still in a vulnerable position, rob them, and then make his getaway. If you're going to go through the trouble of eliminating witnesses by going so far as to loading up QC's body and driving around for hours and hours with her before deciding to meet up with an accomplice and then go through all the extra work of getting across the border, taking a big risk with the body in the back too, and go and chop it all up in Mexico? Why leave one witness alive then? Especially if they're the types to chop people up. They're going to chop both of them up. It's so nonsensical because it didn't happen and because Peter is just dumb. And nobody's buying it. Nobody. 911, you can hear it in her tone. She's just like, uh huh. Let me get a supervisor. And the neighbors, when they began hearing the details of the story too, not only were they not buying it, they were also questioning if they even really knew this family at all. And of course, police aren't buying it either. When they spoke to Peter and listened to the tale that he spun, it was clear that Peter's story was totally fragmented and discombobulated, and so were his emotions. There'd be some outbursts of sobbing, minus tears, of course, and he'd go from full-on stressed and anxious to being totally calm, just all over the place. And another thing that stood out to detectives was that he never once throughout the duration of his interactions with law enforcement ever inquired about his children. Now, I don't know if Peter had his cell phone with him or not. 
He may have been receiving text messages from his kids or from the neighbor who picked them up at the bus stop. Then he may have already had information that his children were okay, but who knows? I mean, he just as likely didn't care because he was in self-preservation mode. To detectives, they believe Peter's lack of concern about his children was due to his preoccupation with keeping up his elaborate story. And as for QC's friends, the one who had seen her go from an insecure newcomer to America to a more confident and independent woman, they were left with a tremendous amount of grief for the loss of their good friend. And as the story evolved from being a possible robbery and kidnapping and murder into this being something that Peter may have had a hand in, there was at least one of her friends, a neighbor named Karen Thorpe, who felt deep down that it was Peter all along. She really couldn't say where that feeling came from, but I'd say it was a sense based on what she knew of QC and Peter and the dynamics of their relationship because it had been evolving and changing, because QC was coming into her own, and because Peter felt threatened. And her feeling wasn't wrong. Six hours after Peter made that 911 call to report his wife missing, he was arrested for murder. And he really had no reaction to that. He didn't get upset that he was being taken into custody, as investigators would have expected him to be somewhat upset for being arrested for something that he's saying somebody else did. I don't find that surprising at all. Peter seems like a really disconnected person. He got a lawyer and he clammed up. But for now, they still needed to figure out where QC was. So, why? What is the motive behind this crime? You heard me and Tyler, and he really couldn't put his finger on a motive, and any of us could only speculate. And so could QC's friends. They only had conjecture as well. And they would hearken back to what we previously discussed, QC's personal growth into a more autonomous and independent woman, moving away from being so reliant upon him becoming her own person. And it's even thought that maybe the reason QC was like that to begin with was because of Peter. He was the one making her feel insecure, with a great deal of self-doubt. But if that was the case, QC never opened up to them about it because it was something that would have been embarrassing for her. Her friend Karen believed QC to be a proud woman, and she would have kept certain aspects of her marriage and her life with Peter to herself. One potential, or at least partial, motive I read about was the possibility of there being a financial motive. There may have been some talk that the Chadwicks weren't doing as well financially as they had been previously, and what all that entails isn't exactly clear. Throughout this entire ordeal, Peter, in all of the headlines referring to this case, call him a multimillionaire. And later on, we're going to see that he did have access to a substantial amount of money. And his father, who comes into our story in a little bit, also has money too. 
But QC's friends also said that part of her own personal growth included starting to do things to feel better about herself. She lost some weight. She was beginning to spend more money on herself, buying things like clothing and makeup. And we all know that stuff can be expensive. She was also socializing more with her girlfriends. They would take vacations together. And it's possible with all of QC's new focus on herself that it was something that Peter didn't like. So this could have easily led to some bickering about money and spending. Though that certainly doesn't seem like motive enough to want to kill someone. But there's more. And you heard Tyler and me talk about it. As it turned out, a search of QC's belongings uncovered a handwritten numbered list, which looks like it was written by QC. It appeared to be in her handwriting, and it was entitled From Pete's Computer, and it appeared to be a search history. The 28 items listed were abortion cost in California, abortion cost in Orange County, abortion fee, abortion fee in California, abortion fee in Orange County, Chinese massage girls, Chinese massage girls escort, Chinese sex massage, cost for an abortion in California, divorce Vicky Tran, California, Galilea Guadalajara escort girls, how much is an abortion, how much is an abortion in California, how to torture, sexy AOI, which I talked about with Tyler, sexy Chinese girl, Team Tijuana Escort Girls, Tijuana Club, Tijuana Dayan Team Tijuana, which I also Googled and it looks like it's an escort service in Tijuana, Tijuana Escort Chica, Tijuana Exotics Escort Chica, Tijuana Life, Vietnam Massage Girls, Vicky Tran, Vicky Tran California, Vicky Tran Home, Vicky Tran Wedding. Now this looked like a photocopy and it appeared that there was a staple with possibly more pages, but that was the only image that I could find of the list. So I mean, based on what we can see here from Peter's search history, he was looking at some pretty strange stuff. What can we infer from this list? Well, for one, he might have gotten someone pregnant. Now, when I brought this up with Tyler, he didn't understand why he's searching for costs because it really isn't all that expensive to get an abortion in California. So being that he's so wealthy, why would he be all that concerned if he was trying to seek one out? And another thing, he was looking for escorts and he was looking for sex workers and, of course, torture, which is totally bizarre. And he seemed particularly interested in a woman named Vicky Tran. The first search where he entered divorce Vicky Tran, my thought was that he was looking for a divorce attorney. But then as we got down towards the end of the list, it said Vicky Tran, California, Vicky Tran, home, Vicky Tran, wedding. And I thought, duh, this guy's not looking for a divorce. If he wanted a divorce rather than kill QC, he would have gotten one. But he didn't want a divorce. 
This is just conjecture on my part, but whenever we see these rich guys who are messing around on their wives, especially if they're the stay-at-home moms and don't work, divorce is going to be really costly. QC's going to get half of everything. She's going to get the kids, she's going to get the child support, the alimony, all that stuff. Because look what Peter's doing behind her back. And now we know she knew about it. That's a pretty big motivator. And it's becoming clear that the Chadwick family was nothing like their friends and neighbors thought. So based on what we've gone over here, particularly Peter's search history, we can easily assume that Peter is having affairs. Though it doesn't seem he's looking for a relationship since he's frequenting escort services and whatnot. So I guess his rules are he gets to spend money on escorts or whatever he wants to spend, but QC spending on hair and clothes and makeup and travel is just out of the question, right? Well, I saw a report that in addition to jotting down the search history that she discovered, which obviously led her to believe that he was possibly cheating, just a few days before she was killed, QC was able to establish that he was cheating when she discovered that he had contracted some sort of sexually transmitted diseases. And that just escalated their problems to the next level. I'm certain of that. So if they're constantly fighting, if QC is contemplating divorce because of all of this, and if Peter doesn't want to bother with going through a divorce, that can also be a big motivator for murder. Though, when you heard Tyler, he didn't think so. But, I would argue, people have killed over much, much less. And I did not see or read anything about instances or incidents where there was domestic violence involved, or if Peter was physically abusive towards QC, but he was being emotionally, mentally, and financially abusive. We know he was inflicting that. But to tell you the truth, and this is just my opinion, from what I've seen of Peter, he comes off as kind of a wuss. And I really can't think of a better word. I know he's being accused of violently strangling QC to death, but I could see that being a moment where all of his resentment and hatred towards QC built up over time. And she might have doubled down on the threats of divorce, especially in light of the STD thing. And with their fighting escalating, I mean, she probably never thought he'd do what he did. But Peter's desires to keep his finances under his control suddenly jumped ahead of him typically being a wimpy guy. Peter Chadwick was arraigned on charges of first-degree murder, and the search for QC was still on, though it was presumed she was dead based on the findings in the home. Their eldest son was still away at boarding school, but the two younger boys were sent to live with their uncle, QC's brother, who resided in the Los Angeles area. And they, at least for the time being, were being kept in the dark as to what was going on with their parents. One week after Peter called 911 to make that ridiculous call, Newport Beach police received a tip. And what that tip was, at the time, they would not get into specifics. But it was a tip that led them to a dumpster 
located along a somewhat remote canyon road in the southern part of San Diego County called Wild Cat Canyon. I mentioned it in my conversation with Tyler that I've been down there numerous times. I'm not much of a gambler, but my mom used to be. So every other weekend or so, she'd ask us to drive her down to a Native American reservation casino called Verona. And we had to drive Wildcat Canyon Road for several miles once we got off the freeway to get there. The canyon is very winding and narrow, and there are lots of turnoffs. And if you've been to the area or you have an idea of what I'm talking about, then you can easily envision Peter driving around there, searching, and thinking about what to do next. Now, he's going to orchestrate his cover-up and his cover story. It had been hours between the time his SUV was seen leaving his gated Newport Beach community and the time that he called 911 in the early morning hours of the following day. He's spending that time looking for a place to hide what he's done, someplace where he hopes that QC will never be found. However, when that tip came through, it brought investigators to that dumpster. Really, there's nothing else around it but the dumpster. And when they opened the lid and started sifting through, they began finding QC's things. Her purse, her ID card, her residency card, and that $10,000 in cash. The money that Peter had said Juan robbed from his safe. And underneath it all, they found QC wrapped in the blanket Peter had described that he was ordered to wrap her in. And this was a really lucky break, too, because that dumpster was scheduled to be picked up after QC's body had been placed in it. But because of a dispute over the payment for the rental of the dumpster, it actually wasn't picked up. So it was really, really a stroke of luck and a big break for the investigation. Once the medical examiner had a chance to perform an autopsy on QC, it was determined that following a struggle for her life, QC was strangled with the possibility of being combined with drowning. So with all the evidence prosecutors are having to work with, they begin to build their case for murder against Peter. He finally had a bail hearing two months after his arrest in December of 2012, at which point it was set at $1 million. I know the prosecution fought to not allow him out on bail, and they point to the fact that he did not seem to have a problem abandoning his children the day that they vanished, failing to pick them up from school, nor did he worry about their whereabouts when he was taken into custody the following day. So that had the prosecution feeling like jumping bail and leaving his kids? Peter wouldn't give it a second thought. But the defense was like, well, he has to take care of his kids, he has ties to the community, this is where he lives and works. He's not going to run anywhere. Even the prosecutor, our good old friend Matt Murphy, he said in an interview, you know this guy? He doesn't have any criminal history to speak of. This is where his roots are. It's his constitutional rights to be granted bail, so it was set at $1 million, which Peter quickly made, and he was out. He did have to turn over his passports, but he didn't have to have an ankle monitor, which I guess isn't standard operating procedures. But the idea was to just keep their eyes on him, 
keep in regular contact with Peter, and make sure he stayed put. But the neighbors, they were absolutely appalled at the fact that Peter got bail. They'd see him drive by, and one of the neighbors saw him. He gave that good old courtesy nod, and she was just like really grossed out by the whole thing. On top of that, Peter Chadwick actually had the nerve to invite people over to mark the hundredth day since QC's death for a candlelight vigil of all things. He sent out emails and everything. He just had their neighbors shaking their heads because you know they think he's guilty. So yeah, you strangle your wife, you throw her away like she's garbage, and then you have this vigil inside the house where you strangled her to death? Really? Neighbor Karen didn't say in the interview if she went or not. I'm kind of sensing not, but she may have gone for the children, seeing as her kids were friends with their kids. So, the preparation for trial was taking a little more than two years. Going through all the pre-trial stuff and whatever. And in January of 2015, there was a scheduled pre-trial hearing But by that time, Peter had left Newport Beach and moved north to Santa Barbara, where his dad lived. And his boys, all of them had been shipped off to boarding schools. Prosecutors feeling confident about their case for first-degree murder when their process of tying up all their loose ends, crossing their T's, dotting their I's, and getting ready to take this all before a jury. They had QC since they had fortunately found her in time before she would have been hauled away in that dumpster that Peter so unceremoniously placed her in. They had all those injuries on Peter's body, his neck, his face, and his hands. They had his very unreasonable story and alibi from Peter and a dubious 911 call. And of course, even though motive doesn't have to be proven in a court of law, they did have their theories, which we alluded to. Marital, financial, all that wacky stuff Peter was into. Bringing home nasty diseases. So gross. So yeah, the Orange County DA's office and the prosecutors were thinking their case is solid. They got this in the bag. Yeah, not so fast. That 2015 pretrial hearing, up to that point, Peter had been doing what he needed to do. He was coming to court with his attorney. He was following all the rules, etc. Up until that day, he failed to appear in court. And his attorney shrugged and was like, uh, I have no clue where he is. So having been free on bail for two years without incident, Peter Chadwick ghosted. And nobody thought he would abandon his kids because even investigators would say, Peter really did seem to love and care about his children. But he had already shipped them off to boarding school. This was January. So they were literally sent there after winter break, right? And they're being fully taken care of. And by the time anyone realized that Peter was gone, he knew someone would step in and take care of him after that, which QC's family did do. But prosecutor Matt Murphy really underestimated Peter Chadwick. And he took some grief for that. Cusie's family and her friends were absolutely stunned that Peter slipped through their fingers. Now, I have not a shred of doubt or surprise that Peter would have done something like this. 
And this is where I hearken back to the suitcase in his SUV the day he called 911 to report his wife had been killed and taken to Mexico. That right there told me he was ready to be on the run if his story wasn't going to fly. He had that suitcase because he still had not sorted out what his plan was going to be. He spent all those hours driving around San Diego with QC's body in the back of the car trying to figure out what his best course of action was going to be. What was he going to do to save his butt? The suitcase was part of that. Could he think of a reasonable story for everything that happened in that bathroom? And he came up with what he came up with. That this one person and his accomplice, Chi, two individuals that only exist in Peter's little pea brain, that's all he could think of. And he probably drove around practicing it too. Because Peter did not want to leave his life. He did not want to lose his kids, his home, and his money. And being on the run meant that was exactly what would happen. He wanted to roll the dice with this preposterous story and try to sell that. And he's probably so narcissistic, he thought he would easily get away with it. I'll just say she's chopped up in Mexico somewhere, and I'll be home before dinner. So this has me thinking he brought the suitcase in case he got cold feet. If he didn't think he could pull it off, that story that he spun, he could just flee. And so there lies the truth in how he feels about his children, as far as I'm concerned. At the time, only the eldest boy was in boarding school. With QC gone, he still needed to be there for the two of them. I believe getting away with QC's murder was more important to him than his children. He had no problem killing their mom. And that's demonstrative of his lack of concern about hurting them. So when police or neighbors say Peter loved his boys, I scoff at that. His love for his children did not surpass his love for himself. And these are the things that I think should have been taken more into consideration, taken more seriously, when deciding Peter's bail. He never intended to be punished for QC's death. He was always only looking out for himself. Now, I again don't want to get into the manhunt for Peter Chadwick because it would go on to span more than four years. But in the beginning, Peter's dad, Michael, he started floating the theory that his son was suicidal and would probably kill himself. But nobody's really believing that either. Not investigators, not QC's friends. Suicide? No way. Not that narcissist. And Peter had a pretty good lead on them, too. By the time he failed to show up for that court hearing, he had been gone for three weeks, and he had been doing his homework when it came to looking up ways to make yourself disappear. When a search was conducted of Michael Chadwick's home, where Peter had been last living while on bail, it turned up reading materials related to the process of making yourself vanish, procuring new identities and throwing investigators off your trail, things such as that. He was also doing things like making test runs to airports. He'd take cab rides there, and it was believed he may have even disguised himself as a woman for the actual cab ride. And when he arrived, he went into a restroom and changed into his regular clothes and he would just hang out there, testing to see if he was being tailed, if anyone was surveilling him. Well, the last time he was seen, that's what happened. He arrived at the Santa Barbara airport. 
He purchased a plane ticket, and then he just sat in the airport lobby for several hours and waited. And part of this is speculated to see if he was being watched and if he would be arrested there. And part of it was to throw investigators off, thinking that he fled to the destination of the flight that he purchased the ticket for. But he never did get on any plane. After a few hours passed and nothing happened, Peter hailed another cab and took off. And from there, the manhunt was on. The search for Peter did go international, and the task of tracking him down was given to the U.S. Marshals. He was subsequently added to their 15 most wanted list, along with a $100,000 reward for his capture. What made Peter's case particularly difficult was the fact that not only did he have access to a lot of money, meaning he had the means to disappear and sustain himself for at least some time, he also had help likely from his family who had lots of money too. Though they did not believe Peter was in any kind of contact with his children, help was coming from someplace else within his family. Before Peter left, several surveillance camera images of him were captured making a series of cash withdrawals from his various accounts. In total, before he fled, he had on his person approximately $1 million to work with. And to me, this seems like it should have been a thing that investigators should have been keeping an eye on for a person out on bail, especially facing murder charges. Going to airports, going to banks, an ankle monitor at the very least should have been slapped on him. But hey, hindsight is twenty twenty. They simply didn't think Peter would leave his kids. They gave him, the devoted dad, the benefit of the doubt. So lots of leads came over the years claiming to spot Peter all over the world. Canada, Japan, Mexico, Ukraine, all sorts of places. And obviously there are those people who are trying to cash in on a reward. But I mean, what good is it going to do if the lead is no good and the capture isn't going to be made? No reward is going to be paid. The marshals in the early stages had some information that Peter had gone north towards Canada. He had left some breadcrumbs up that way, but ended up doubling back and headed south to Mexico. In 2017, Peter was reported to have been in a car accident or a bus accident, something like that. So they knew that's where they needed to be focused. Based on what the U.S. Marshals know about Mexico, it's pretty easy to get your hand on a counterfeit passport. And of course, all of this nonsense is just another blow to QC's family and friends who really want to see justice done for QC. First he kills her, then he throws her away, then he gets out, now he's gone. And he's all but abandoned his children. And it's likely going to be forever whether or not he gets caught. And that's what hurts QC's friends the most. That Peter showed absolutely no concern for his children from the time that he decided to take their mother away from them to the time that he decided to jump bail and flee from justice. And this went on for more than four years, until just this month. A little more than a week ago, on August 5th, it was announced to the media that Peter Chadwick was captured in Mexico by the Mexican Federal Police and handed over to U.S. authorities. Peter was found by way of a tip though they wouldn't say what that tip was or where it came from, but they got him. 
He had been taken into custody close to a town called Puebla, which is about an hour south of Mexico City, so he was deep in the country. The U.S. Marshal who had gone to the airport to take him into custody once he was flown back to the United States was Marshal Craig McCluskey, and he had been interviewed for a segment of 48 Hours that aired just this past May. And it was his belief that when he arrested him that Peter recognized him from the show. So yeah, Peter was watching his case being told on CBS's 48 Hours when he was on the run, and once he saw that he was on the U.S. Marshal's Most Wanted, he knew that he wasn't going to be forgotten about anytime soon. And Marshall McCluskey did say that Peter asked about his kids, but was that genuine concern? Meh, I don't think so. Because if he watched the 48 Hours episode, then he clearly saw that everyone thought that he was a big jerk for what he did to his kids. Almost more than the fact that he snuffed out Casey's life. Everyone kept saying in their interviews, we didn't think he'd do that to his kids, but he never asked about his kids. We can't believe that he'd abandon his kids. So I kind of think that that stuck with Peter, like, wow, I'm really an asshole. And maybe he decided to make the cursory inquiry in order to shed some kind of decent light on himself. It's a little too late, if you ask me, but whatever. So once Peter realized how massive the manhunt had become, it really started wearing on him. I mean, he was already looking over his shoulder every day anyway, but this only compounded it. And because the story is still developing, there are a few details about what Peter had been up to during the four years on the run. When he was arrested, he had rented an apartment on the outskirts of Puebla, and the town actually consisted of mostly white people with a spattering of Asians as well. So he picked a place that, of course, was near tennis courts because you got to play tennis, which is something Peter loved to indulge in. And it appeared that Peter tried to alter his appearance a little bit, but he was still pretty recognizable. He may have been dyeing his hair. He grew out like a goatee or a mustache or something. And it was even speculated that he may have had some minor plastic surgery. And to me, his face looked thinner than his mugshot, but he still pretty much looked the same. And Peter had several fake IDs with a bunch of different aliases. Paul Craig, Paul Cook, John Franklin. He was born in 1964, but all of his fake IDs shaved off a few years to make himself younger. He even had a fake card that identified him as some sort of fake special agent with some fake special forces, like it said SHIELD on it. And they think he did this so that he could kind of get in with the local police in the town that he was hiding in. But the one thing he never did get was a counterfeit passport, as had been previously thought. And this kind of threw a wrench into Peter's plans down in Mexico due to policy changes when it came to foreign visitors there. When he first started hiding out in Mexico, he was staying at more upscale hotels and paying cash and showing fake IDs. But as new laws went into effect requiring foreign visitors to show more official pieces of identifications, like visas or passports, Peter was no longer to stay at those swanky places, but rather had to resort to hostels, even ending up renting that small apartment near Puebla. And Peter also needed to do what he could to stay under the radar and not draw too much attention to himself, but also try to acclimate to the area, and so he started finding some work too. 
Even though he had a lot of money with him, he wanted to try to become one of the locals by doing some side jobs here and there. Investigators believe that he worked for a time teaching English to local children and making money doing that, and he was also bussing tables at a local restaurant. It's speculated that Peter believed that he needed to do what he could to blend into the background, to not raise any eyebrows, in order to stay on the lam. But all along, the marshals knew that Peter was in regular communication with people helping him here in the United States, and how they were helping him and how much money they were sending isn't quite clear yet. Who those people were, they aren't saying. If any charges are coming down, they aren't saying that either. But Marshall McCluskey credited the positive rapport that they have with the federales down in Mexico, working in conjunction with them, along with all the work the Newport Beach police are putting into this, and along with that tip. All of this led to Peter's capture just a little more than a week ago. Marshall McCluskey said Peter, for his part, seemed somewhat relieved that all of this was over. So that's basically it. My group members, you all will most likely keep us all posted with the updates as the case against Peter progresses. And until then, that's all there is for our story for now. And I would like to again thank Tyler from the Minds of Madness podcast for joining me on this one. And that brings this 103rd episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official discussion page. We have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of the cases that we cover. So please come request and join. You can also follow the show on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. This week, I would like to wish a happy birthday to Lisa P. on August 12th, Holly P. on the 14th, Melissa S. on the 18th, Michelle P. on the 20th, Melissa C. on the 21st, and Samantha T., the host of Long Since Past podcast and the Coast to Ghost podcast on the 22nd. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company in Los Angeles with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. So please give us a visit at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams.